privilege to uh, be with you this morning. For those, I've been here a couple of times, but for those who don't know, my name is John Bell, and I uh, live with my family in, uh, in Hazlitt, and it is a great privilege to uh, be able to come and share with you uh, this morning. As we uh, start, I'm conscious of things happening in our world um, in two places. One is in Washington, D.C., and major decisions that are having to be made. Uh, and I confess that I don't have a lot of good input. Um, I get confused. Um, and I know a lot of people have very strong feelings, and that's part of the challenge right now. But God has told us to pray. And so I'd like for us to take a moment to pray for these conversations going on about how our country deals with its finances. Um, a challenge for all of us right now, an incredible challenge for our country. And also I'm very conscious of what's happened in Norway over the last two days and their experience of, of uh, something like we've had happen, somebody inside the country who, for whatever reason apparently, has you know, wreaked havoc on, on, on the, the sense of security of a country and hundreds some odd people killed and uh, it's a very challenging thing and uh, we ought to pray. So let's take a moment to pray. Father in heaven, I thank you that we can come to you in a in a turbulent world that, that you understand and yet you are sovereign in the midst of it. You tell us to pray. So Father, we want to pray this morning for um, our government leaders, for uh, President Obama and the others who have to uh, come to some sort of agreement. And Father, I pray that you would give them great wisdom and insight. I pray that there'd be clear communication. I pray, pray that there would be boldness and a great effort to understand. And Father, I pray for a good solution. Um, I pray that you would uh, oversee this, that, uh, that you would protect from the efforts to use this for political advantage or whatever else might be going on. Father, that they would make a wise choice and have the courage to pursue it. Father, we pray for uh, the people in Norway and the crises that they've seen over the last two days. And um, just pray for your comfort for people who uh, have been directly affected by this and for so many who their sense of security, we understand when that's lost, what it's like. And Father, I pray that in the midst of this, perhaps you would use it to, to awaken a people to their need for you. And so those who, are, those who know you in your ways could be clear about that, that people would turn to you in this time. And Father, I pray for our time together this morning as we've had the, the opportunity to worship and to declare what is true about you and your son. Father, I pray that you'd bless your word now as we take a look at it directly and, and uh, just pray that you would honor it, that your Holy Spirit would be active in teaching us. In your son's name we pray, amen. So you are all in the uh, midst of a great series um, going through the book of John. We're taking a little break from John today as, uh, as your pastor is, uh, is away. And, uh, but I just love this series and looking at this, this portrait of God as John describes Jesus. And uh, it's just an amazing thing. Uh, our God is an amazing God. To see this mixture of humanity and deity in one man. And it was a startling thing. And yet, what greater thing could it be that God does in expression of his love for people is to step into who they are and, and save them. And it's a wonderful thing. But in that, there's a challenge for me. Um, and that is, not everybody has equal opportunity to hear these things. Not everybody has equal opportunity to understand the gospel. So I work on campus at Michigan State. And frankly, a lot of people that I work with, interact with, when they hear the word Christian, this is what they hear. They hear a political viewpoint. 
right? They say, here's a bunch of people, and this is the way they think, that, you know, that evangelical voting block, that they're, you know, and, and that's what they hear. Or they hear, here's a moral standard that, you know, that, that Christians say, this is the way you need to live, and they say, and these are bad ways to live. And they sit back and say, so stop doing those bad things, right? That's what they hear. Or, or they hear this, this sense of, of legalism that says, you know, you've got to be a better person. And this is what they think the gospel is. It has nothing to do with the gospel. But they hear the word Christian and they say, that's what I think you're talking about. And, and frankly, I have a lot of sympathy with people who think that way because if you paid attention to what normally you hear in the media, in movies, uh, you know, all sorts of places, that's what you think of. And so I struggle with this. There are a whole bunch of people who are rejecting something and they don't even know what it is they're rejecting. I think, can that be right? Well, so then I have a, a friend who's a um, Chinese student, recently graduated, but he said, I've come here from China and I've had the opportunity to hear the gospel and to understand it. That's a great thing. But he says, what about my family back in China? I had to come here to hear this stuff. Yeah, maybe it's back there, but I never encountered it, he says. And what about them? And frankly, I wish I had easier answers to respond to that. Because actually, I realize there are places that are far more challenging than, than China. You know, consider living in, in North Korea, uh, in Saudi Arabia, and other places where they say, no, we don't want any way that, you know, it's, it's completely illegal for anybody to communicate the gospel in an effort to help them accept it. That's illegal and we'll punish it. Right? And so people grow up in this setting and they never have a, a reasonable chance to hear the gospel. And then I think just in our day and age, it's, it's still far easier than, you know, realize for how much of the world's history they've not had a written copy of God's word in a language they can understand. And, and now it's overly abundant for us. And so actually I did this uh, quick search um, on, uh, on Google. I went in and I just said, what is the gospel? 147 million hits. <laughs> 147 million pages that refer to this, but actually the most impressive part about it is that Google reported that in 0.13 seconds. It figured out there are 147 million pages that could answer this question in 0.13 seconds, and I'm impressed. But actually a good thing about this is I can't vouch for everything that, that comes up, obviously, but some of the top links that come up are actually really good links. So if somebody today just said, I'd like to know what the gospel is, they go to Google and they say, what is the gospel? They could find some pretty good answers. We are spoiled, and I wrestle with the issue, what about the people who don't have this kind of access that, that we're so comfortable with? And I wonder, where is God on this? And sometimes, I, I confess, I start to think about God a little bit like, you know, the idea of, of deism, of a God who created the world and then said, okay, go for it. Make of it what you will, and step back. And sometimes I start to feel like, it, it's kind of like what God seems to have done sometimes with the church, he said, okay, church, here you go. Do of it what you will. And I wonder, what's his plan? What's his concern? Where's his heart in this? What I want to do this morning, as I said, we're going to look at Romans. To try to understand this, we're going to look at Romans chapter 15. And if you grab one of the pew Bibles, um, okay, so I discovered a funny thing about your pew Bibles today. There are two pages that are labeled 128. One's in the back and one's in the front. So, Page 128 is the place to be, but one of them isn't the place to be. So go to the back part of it and find page 128. It's Romans 15, but I want to set the stage. You've heard this many times, I know, from your pastor. You need to understand the context in which something is written. And so along those lines, I've got a map of the, the Mediterranean. 
And you know, on the bottom, we've got North Africa to the right Middle East and then Europe, and obviously a huge place in the world today in terms of international politics. Amazing things happening that a year ago we'd have no idea. Uh, it was a very significant world back in the days of Jesus and the church. And so over here to the right in Jerusalem is where Jesus, he was born just outside the city, he was crucified just outside the city, and it's here really where the church began. And, and Jesus' followers, not many of them, he said, stay here until something happens. And they didn't really know what that something was, but they knew it'd be big. And all of a sudden, they have the boldness to preach the gospel to all these people who come from all over the world into Jerusalem. And they get to tell them the good news. And, and it's a great thing that happens, but unfortunately, they then just stayed there. And it seems that Jesus' intent was that they go out from there but then this persecution began that accomplished what wasn't happening on its own. That the church was persecuted in Jerusalem, and so then the people did leave. And when they went, they took the good news with them. One of the key people in sending them out was this man named Saul of Tarsus, who said, I'm opposed to this church. I will stop this church. I will stop this following after Jesus. I don't want it to happen. He was a key leader in that, and they sent him out, and eventually the church made its way up to the city of Antioch, north of Jerusalem. And here in Antioch is where they were first called Christians. And this really became a, a significant church in terms of saying, let's keep spreading the word around. And ironically, a key leader in this church was Saul, who became Paul because of work that God had done in his life. So he initiated, in a negative way, the move out from Jerusalem to spread the gospel. Then in Antioch, in a positive way, he was a part of continuing to spread that gospel out. Uh, and so then the gospel spread. Eventually, uh, the, the Christians made their way all the way to Rome. And so then a church was started in Rome. We don't know much about this church. Don't know who started it. Uh, very little detail about that. It seems to make sense. I don't have much evidence, but it seems plausible that back when the church, or when the, the people were in Jerusalem and the gospel was first told to the people from all around the world, a bunch of them found their way to Rome and started a church. Maybe that was going back home for them. But a church started there, a church we know a little bit about that had a tension between the Jews and the non-Jews, called Gentiles, and there was some conflict there, and so then Paul wrote a letter. He wrote this letter to the people there, and we've got a record of that letter called Romans. Now, in order to read this letter well, we have to think about the people to whom it was written. So imagine you're listening to a, a doctor uh, in a phone conversation with uh, a patient. And, and the doctor says something like, I know it's painful, but you just have to push through it. Now, sometimes that's good advice. Sometimes pain's telling you something, stop. But, you know, the doctor says, I know it's painful, push through it. Well, if the doctor also says, you know, after you've had knee replacement surgery, there is a time of physical therapy when it's going to be painful, but you've got to go through it, right? I mean, so something like this. If you know a bit about the context, then you say, okay, I understand that advice. Because another time the doctor says, You've got to slow down a little. I know you want to get up and do things, but you've got to rest. Opposite advice. But if you hear the doctor say, you know, you're fighting this infection still. You're, you're still in recovery. If you get up and get going now, you're going to ruin it, right? Different advice, but if you understand the context in which it's given, it makes sense. And then if you want to listen to the doctor, you say, well, to what degree is my situation like their situation? And then I know what I should do about it. So what we're doing when we read Romans is we're listening to the one half of the conversation. 
And it's very helpful for us to say, but what's going on in the other half of the conversation? Now let me give you my, my, my three-minute sketch of Romans. Paul says, here's what I want to confirm for all of you. This is the gospel we're talking about. Nobody can ever be right before God. And that's it. Nobody will ever be justified before God and God says, wow, you're good. Come on, join my team. Nobody lives that good. Not Jew, not Gentile, not in the past, not in the future. It doesn't happen. It's Paul's argument. But he says there is a solution. That amazingly, there's a solution independent of human behavior in which we can be made right with God. And that is the grace of God through Jesus Christ. Right? He says there's a solution that's completely independent of being good enough. And it's available to everybody. And he says when you have that solution, there's great hope. There's hope even in the face of death. And much of the book of Romans is about this tension between the Jews and the non-Jews who are living together. And so he explains that and he says, and here's how you ought to live. And that's his book. And then I think at Romans 15, he says, and now let me tell you a bit about how this relates to me. And so we come to Romans 15 and I'm actually going to start with the, the last part of what we're going to look at today, Romans 15, 22. Because here we get a hint of the question that Paul's answering. Romans 15, 22, he says, For this reason, I have often been prevented from coming to you. He says, This is why I haven't come. So you can figure out what's on the other side of the phone conversation. The people are saying, Paul, why haven't you come? I mean, you're this great leader. You say you're concerned about churches. We've been asking you to come. You know, we've got a room set aside for you. We've got a whole week of times you can preach. I mean, we've got all this set up for you. Why don't you come? And Paul in this section explains to the people why he has found it best not to visit this group of Christians that's wanted him to come. Okay, so now let's go back and see his answer. And I think we'll see some profound things about how God views our world today. So, Romans 15, verse 14. Let me read through it and then just make some reflections. And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able also to admonish one another. But I've written very boldly to you on some points so as to remind you again, because of the grace that was given me from God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God, so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed, in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and round about as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ." And thus I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation. But, as it is written, they who had no news of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. For this reason I have often been prevented from coming to you. But now, with no further place for me in these regions, and since I have had for many years a longing to come to you, whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing, and to be helped on my way there by you, which I have first when I have first enjoyed your company for a while, but now I'm going to Jerusalem serving the saints. Okay, let's just go back and, and walk through this text. Verse 14, he says, concerning you. In, um, in English, we have a way to emphasize uh, a word or a phrase or, or something. And one of the 
techniques that we use is to repeat the word. So boy, that was a good, good meal, right? I mean, that's a way that we say, boy, that was a really good meal, but sometimes we just repeat the word. Greek has something very similar in which if, if the language already says this is a first person singular, I'm speaking, and the writer then adds another pronoun that says I'm the one speaking, it's a way to add emphasis to it. And so in the New American Standard, it says I myself, right? It's an emphasis that Paul says, this is my opinion. I'm not speaking on behalf of the elders of the church or, you know, kind of a, we did an opinion poll and this is what everybody thinks. He says, no, this is I myself. This is my thought. And then what's surprising in this passage is he does the same thing about the people he's talking to. So you notice that New American Standard, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves. So he says, I'm convinced about you guys in particular, not about Christians in general, not about all the people that I know about, about you guys, as, as he's saying, as Christians in Rome. So he says, this is very personal. I myself am, am persuaded about something about you yourselves. And what's he persuaded of? He said that you're full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. He says, I am convinced that you guys specifically are good people. You're living good lives. You've got good moral standards. You're doing productive work. You are full of goodness. And he says, you're full of knowledge. You've got good thoughts, good beliefs. You're on track. And he says, you've also got people who could admonish you. And, and the, the idea of this word it is a teaching word, but it's teaching so as to correct behavior and belief. So Paul says, I'm fully persuaded about you guys, you specifically, you as a church. He says, I'm fully persuaded that you guys are living good lives, right? Your behavior is good and your beliefs are good. And if there's any trouble with your behavior or beliefs, you've got good people who can correct you, right? So the first thing that Paul says is, I haven't come to you because you guys don't really need me, right? Take the training wheels off. Enough already. You guys can do this. You don't need me to hold your hand anymore. He says, I'm confident in you. I'm fully persuaded you're set to go. His first reason for why he hasn't gone out of his way to visit them. But he goes on. Verse 15, he says, I have written very boldly to you on some points so as to remind you again. So he says, okay, well, so you're not perfect. <laughs> you know, I, I've had to write in Romans has some bold statements that he says, here's something you've got to do differently. But he said, everything that I've said to you in this letter, it's not brand new stuff. It's a reminder. It's just saying, remember that stuff that you've heard before? Stick to it. So it's not like, he says, it's not like you need me to take you off into new territory and new beliefs or new behaviors. You know the right stuff. So even when I correct you, it's a reminder, not new stuff. And then he goes on to say, but this is why I'm even correcting you. Middle of verse 15, because of the grace that was given me from God. This grace, so the word grace, we use in different ways. And so in our popular culture, we say, you know, let's say grace before a meal. It's, it's our prayer. In the more religious, church-oriented language, in a Christian church, we talk about grace as salvation. It's, you know, the, the, the word, you know, the phrase, God's riches at Christ's expense, right? G-R-A-C-E. And, and there's a great summary of what grace is that saves us. Paul, I think, is actually talking about a different kind of grace, a different aspect of grace than these two. He says that there was a grace given me, and so I'm just going to flip back to Romans 12, verse 6. He's explaining how God works in the church, and he says, so we have gifts that differ according to the grace 
given to us, each of us to exercise them accordingly. And he goes on to say, some people have the grace, this, this gift of prophecy, others of serving, others of teaching, of exhorting, of giving, of leading, of showing mercy. Paul says that God set this, this, this organization up, this church, by giving out gifts, giving out grace to different people for the purpose of accomplishing what God wants to happen in that group of people. And different people get different things. Salvation, we all get the same grace. But in this way, this grace is given and is expressed in these different gifts. Paul says, God's given me a particular gift. And so if we go back to where he was persecuting the church and then went to be a leader in the church, Here's a statement that was made about Paul that expresses this grace that was given to him. I'm looking in Acts uh, chapter 9, verse 15. Uh, God is speaking to this, this man who's got to go and meet Saul, the persecutor of the church. God says to him, go, for he, Saul, is a chosen instrument of mine to do this, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. There's a unique calling, a unique gifting, a unique plan that God has for this guy, Paul. This unique thing to reach out to the Gentiles. And so back in Romans 15, verse 16, it says that. He says, here's the grace that was given me, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. Now, Gentile is another one of these words that has a lot of religious baggage with it. And and what's it really come from? Well, I love looking at the origins of words, And the origin of this word Gentile is not actually Greek, which, you know, the New Testament was written in Greek, that this word comes from Latin. If you go back to what was used in in Greek, it's the word we get ethnicity from. It's ethnos, it's it's people groups, it's, it's the nation. So if you go back even further into a Jewish mindset, a Jewish mindset said there's Israel and they're the nations, right? Two categories, there's Israel and everybody else. And in effect, that's, I think, what, what Paul is saying here. There are the, the, the Jews, and there's everybody else. And so this actually is the idea in Latin, that it comes from, uh, you know, genus, from the genetic, the idea of, of, a, of, of genes of a group of people. It's saying all the other people. But it gets this religious language to it. I think it's more helpful to think about it as basically what we would say in, in, in our American English is everybody else. <laughs> Paul says... I was given this grace to be a minister of Christ Jesus to everybody else, to those beyond, to the rest of the world. And and then he uses this, this language that comes out of his own Jewish heritage of being a priest. And he says, I'm a priest before God, and what I'm to do is bring in this offering to give to God. And what's that offering? Everybody else. He says, that's my offering. I want to bring all these other people to God and offer them as an acceptable sacrifice. He says, that's why I've corrected you guys in some things because I want you to be an acceptable sacrifice and God has called me and it seems that the Roman church was predominantly Gentile, was predominantly of the non-Jews. He says, I want you guys to be an acceptable offering to God so I am correcting you because that's my call is to bring everybody else as an offering to God. But it's not just Paul's work he says, sanctified by the Holy Spirit, made holy, made acceptable to God by the Holy Spirit. And it's a fascinating passage because it's not too many times, surprisingly, in the Bible that we see the Trinity very explicitly laid out of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we see it here, that 
Uh, generally in the New Testament, when we have the word God on its own, it's referring to God the Father. Uh, he says in verse 15, the grace was given me from God the Father, it seems, to be a minister of Christ Jesus. Sanct- so we give it a, a, an offering sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So we have the action of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit here. And Paul says, that's what I'm about. This was the grace given me from God to bring everybody else and offer them as something acceptable to God. So then he goes on, verse 17, therefore in Christ Jesus I found reason for boasting. And we struggle, I struggle with this idea of boasting. Anything from people who you know, tell their own accomplishments too much or people who tell their kids' accomplishments too much or grandparents that say, oh, we, we fall into this and yet there's this funny uh, experience that we have in our culture where if somebody is really good, then, then being proud is okay to boast about it. You know, the problem is when people are proud and they have no reason to be proud. <laughs> you know, and we're bothered by that. You know, but, but if somebody's really good and they're kind of obnoxious about it, you say, well, that's the price of people being really good. Right? That's not what we're talking about here in Paul at all. Paul says, I found something worth boasting about. Now, let's go back to, if you know, Romans 1.16. Key verse in this book, I am not ashamed of the gospel. He said, this is something, I think he's expressing this idea, even though there are some challenging parts about this gospel, I'm not leaving it. Even though there can be some people who aren't happy about me proclaiming this, I'm not leaving it. I'm not ashamed of this. I'm going to hold on to it. To be ashamed of something is to try it out and part way in say, boy, this isn't working very well. I'm setting it aside and hope nobody noticed I was doing that, right? That's to be ashamed of something. Paul says, I'm not doing that. I'm sticking to this gospel thing. And here he says, there's something else that I'm sticking to. He says, I've got this reason for boasting of something pertaining to God. And if you have different translations, it might actually put the, this idea of my work for God, which isn't literally here. The New American Standard is more literal in terms of just things pertaining to God or things toward God or things for God. But actually, he goes on to say his work for God because what's the next verse say? He says, I'm not going to talk about anything except this one thing. And that is what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles. Paul says, this is, this is where I plant my flag in my life. My job in life is that I would bring all these nations to worship Christ. That, that I would bring them as an offering. And he says, I'm proud of this. I'm going to stand by this. And if you guys try to pressure me to do something different, I'm not backing off of this. If all the church says, but Paul, we need you over here, he'd say, well, I'm sorry. I know what I'm here for, and I'm not ashamed of it. I'm proud of it. This is what God is doing. And, and Paul's not saying, I'm such a good person, God had to find the best guy to do this. No, Paul actually says, I'm the worst guy in the world to do this. And yet God chose me anyway. And I'm not embarrassed of that. I'm going to stick to it. This is what we've got to do. Come, come challenge, come opposition, we're going to do it. And it's a funny expression that he says, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles. Now, I express this idea that you can't do anything, right? Nobody makes it into heaven by being good enough. And yet here he talks about obedience of the Gentiles. I think what he's talking about is people who willingly submit to this offer of God for grace. They're obedient to it. They submit to this good news that says you can't do it on your own, but if you'll accept this, it's all yours. And to obey that is to willingly accept it. And he says, that's what I'm doing this for. That's my goal. Now, next phrase by word and deed. 
It could be that this is referring to how the, the Gentiles, the nations, respond to this gospel. I think it makes more sense to recognize this as a description of how God is working through Paul's life. He says, by word and by deed. By word is the expression of the gospel. That's Romans. Here he's written out, this is what the gospel is. And his argument is, you cannot know this stuff without being told. You can't go for a walk on the beach and the mountains, see the sunrise, and, and figure this stuff out. You can't see the power of a storm and understand what kind of God we have. Because you'll never discover that God is a God who will die for his people. You can't find that out anywhere except being told. Paul said, I've told people that. By my words, God has done a great work because people have heard the gospel. And he says, by my deeds. Back to, remember, we saw this at the beginning. By word and by deed. And he said, my actions are consistent with what I've told people. The way I respond in life, the things that I'm doing, the change in my life is evidence that my words are true. And then he goes on and says, by, by signs and wonders. In the power of signs and wonders. And this is a challenging one because then I think, wow, you know, should we be having more of that in the church today? And there's all sorts of debate about this. A fascinating thing to do is you get a chance to do it, go to Bible Gateway or you know, whatever way you have searching the Bible, is just search for the expression of signs and wonders. And what you'll find is there are a couple of key places where this happens repeatedly in the Bible. The first, and in some ways the foremost, is when God brought his people out of the land of Egypt. And God showed signs and wonders. And so both were, it's described there, and then repeatedly, like in the Psalms, repeatedly it says, the signs and wonders you did back in Egypt. And let me just give you the one expression that when God was explaining to Moses what's going to happen, this is back in Exodus 7, he says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. God says, I'm going to do a great thing, and I want all the world to know about it. Uh, the next separate reference to this, Nebuchadnezzar, a king in Babylon who had some sort of conversion experience to recognize the God of Israel, he says, I want everybody to know about the signs and wonders that God has done in, in, in my life. One reference there, and then the rest of the references are to what happened when the church was being formed, and especially when the Gentiles were being brought into the church. We have no idea how controversial it was for the Jewish Christians to accept the non-Jewish Christians as equal people. This was a mind-boggling thing to them. They couldn't handle it. There was almost a division in the church because of it. The first split. And yet it was so deeply ingrained that this doesn't make sense. And God used signs and wonders there to help confirm the message of people like Paul saying, this is the path ahead. Paul says, God has done these signs and wonders in my ministry to bring the Gentiles in. And I think in a way, he's, he's drawing a parallel between what Moses did to bring the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. That he's doing something comparable to bring the Gentiles into the grace of God, into the church. And God is doing an amazing work through it. He says all of this is by the power of the Holy Spirit. His words, his deeds, the signs, the wonders, even people's response, all of this is in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so then he says, here's my ministry. He says, from Jerusalem all the way around as far as Illyricum. And so on this map, um, I have this, uh, this line that roughly shows this area where Paul in his repeated missionary journeys slowly moves further out. 
And so up there in the, the, right in the center, Illyria is this area, Illyricum, and he says, I've been to all these places. And what does he say? I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Literally, I have fulfilled the gospel. Wow, <laughs> that's quite a claim. You know, I fulfilled what has to be done. I think what he's saying is, in all those areas, there are now active groups of Christians who can spread the word, right? We've got a beachhead in all these places, and that's my job. And so I've got that there. He says, I've done that. And so now his aspiration is to preach the gospel, not where Christ is already named. Think that expression where Christ is named is where Christ is worshiped. It's not just people can take a multiple choice test and say, yeah, I can figure out which one is Christ in this list. It's not just knowledge. To name Christ is to worship him. And he says, I want to go preach where that hasn't happened yet. That's where I want to go. And then he says this, what can seem so proud, I don't want to build on another man's foundation. It's kind of like he doesn't think anybody else can build very well. You know, I need to do it from scratch or it's not good enough. I don't think that's at all. What he's saying is, I want to build where there aren't foundations. <laughs> I want to go to a place where there aren't Christ worshipers yet. Because that's what needs to be done. That's what God called me to do because I'm here to offer up everybody else. And so then he goes on to quote from the Old Testament. Um, one of the challenging things in understanding the Bible is, you know, I made reference to, you have two page 128s in your Bible because you've got the Old Testament and the New Testament. One of the great challenges is to say, how do these two fit together? And in that, one of the challenges is this gospel thing that Paul just described in Romans of nobody's good enough, but somehow God has offered a sacrifice such that now I can be acceptable. The question is, where is that really expressed in the Old Testament? And I think there's one place that stands about out above all others, and that's Isaiah 53, right? By his wounds, I am healed. By God taking up my sin upon himself, now I am free, right? And it very clearly says that. In this most prominent place, Paul quotes Isaiah 52, 12, which is the lead-in to this verse, and he says, guess what? This is a message that people can't figure it out, but God says, I want everybody to know it. That, that those who haven't heard this, they're gonna know it. That the everybody else, God says, that's my plan, is that they would all get this. That's my goal, is that everybody would hear this message. And so Paul says, what I'm doing fits the heart of God. This has always been his plan. And so now he says, that's why I haven't found time to visit you guys yet. Because you've got a foundation. You're doing great. I have been called to go where Christ is not yet worshiped. And so, in fact, he says, um, I, I'm setting my sights a little bit further out now. I want to go as far as Spain because that's the next reach of the gospel because he says, I've been called to get everybody else. And so I haven't been coming to you guys even though I would long to. And he says, now I think I can, but I'm going to do it on my way to the next place. And he says, would you help me in doing that? Would you send me on my way? Would you participate with me in this task? So what is this section about that, that Paul has, has written? I think the big idea is this. God's design is that the gospel would be brought where Christ is not yet worshipped. That's what it's all about. This is what's on God's heart. God says, this is a gospel everybody needs to know about. And I want those who don't yet worship my son to hear it. That's his design. Okay, so we go back to this question of what do you do about loads of people who don't have the gospel easily accessible to them. 
Still hard questions in that. But here's one thing I know. That's not God's intent. God's plan is that everybody know it. And his plan is that we'd be a part of that. Right? His plan is to use the church to get the news everywhere. And and so here's the the illustration I think that is helpful in thinking about that uh, when we can see it. There we go, by increasing the surface area of the church. Kind of a funny expression. So, um, in our house, we have this uh, great invention. Um, It's a refrigerator that lets you get stuff out of it without opening the door, right? So you can put your cup up there and you get some water, and you put your cup up there and you can get some ice. This is a great thing. You don't have to open it up. You, don't have, you, know, you get filtered water, all these great things. And the ice, you have two options. You can get it cubed or crushed. Okay, so I'm stuck on this cubes. Aren't cubes shaped like you know, these little toy blocks? These aren't coming out cubes. They're you know, cut off parts of circles or something. I don't know what they are. So I'm, okay, so once I get over that, <laughs> then I think about this crushed ice. So now you want to have a cold drink. What do you choose? You know, paper or plastic, you know, crushed or cubed. You know, you got to make a choice here, right? Which one do you choose if you want a cold drink? Well, it's obvious. If you want a cold drink sooner, choose crushed ice. It'll cool your, your drink off much faster. Why is that? Because there's more surface area. Because what cools off your drink when ice touches warm water or drink, right? That's, that's the magic. That's what's making it all happen. So if you get more of that to happen, it'll cool off faster. If you put cubed ice in, you've got a whole bunch of ice that's not doing anything until everybody around it melts, right? Right at the core of that ice cube, that cold water's not doing, that frozen water's not doing a thing for you until everything else melts, and then finally it starts to do something for you, right? So you can try this experiment. You know, next time you get the ice, think about it, which is faster. You know, you get your two cups, one, you know, same temperature, and do a hypothesis, and repeat the experiment. Uh, you can do whatever you want, but if you want it, colder, faster, put crushed ice in. That's the picture that God says. I want more people to know this sooner. I need more surface area. So I was thrilled last night, was preaching when, uh, when this was brought before us. I mean, I'm thrilled because I think it's a great device. But I'm also thrilled because it does me a great job in terms of an illustration. I was looking at this this week, and you know a fascinating thing about these defibrillators? So a question is, how well does it work? Well, I want to compare two groups of people. One is all of us. And the other is people who are specially trained in the use of you know, first responders, paramedics, that type of thing. Which group do you think it's going to work better with? Us normal people who don't know what we're doing, <laughs> maybe a half hour training or something like that, and the people who have gone to school to be trained in all these things, guess what? It works better with us. Why would that be? Because timing is everything. Because we're here. They're down at an office, you know, in a, in a station someplace, and they've got to drive here, and in the time it takes them to get here, key time is lost. So what have we done? We've increased the surface area of life-saving technology. We've brought it closer to people, and it saves lives. And so I encourage you to go to the training of this, because it's going to be better the more you know. But what's key about it is that it's close to the need. God says, here's my plan. I want to increase the surface area of the church because I want the people who know the answer to be close to the people who don't. So here's another silly illustration. Uh, Here's a a cow uh, licking on a a salt block. 
Key thing for cows, I don't know a whole lot about cows, but it seems that cows often need salt, especially when it's hot out. So you put salt out there for them to lick. That'll serve a few cows, right? If you've got a big herd, they're going to be pushing around each other. It's going to take forever to get there. How much better to get a, uh, a salt flat? And if we can come up with a picture, I know I point somewhere and it works. Uh, let's see. There we go. You get a salt flat, right? And so now you can service all the cows you want. You spread it out flat, and, and they can all go for it, okay? So here's the picture of the church. All too often, we're block of salt. We're all packed together in one place, and all the people who need it are somewhere else. And God says, I've got to increase the surface area of this. So you take a typical church service like what we're doing right now. I expect, I know that there's some people here today who are, are exploring the claims of Christianity, are trying to make sense of it. And, and you say, I'm not yet a Christ worshiper yet. And you know what? I am thrilled you're here. I commend you for the boldness to be here, the courage to be here. Because you know what? Most people who have that question don't have the courage to come to church to deal with it. Right? They say, I'm going to deal with something else instead. So if you're here like that, I am thrilled that you're here and, and God is doing a great work in your life and don't take that lightly. For most of us, we're all gathered together and we worship Christ. And all the need is all out there. But here's a wonderful thing that happens. In a little bit, we end the service and we flatten out. We become a great salt flat. And now we're all spread out with the opportunity to be close to people who aren't yet worshiping Christ. Right? That's the picture. God says, I want everybody to know this stuff. And the way they're going to know it is not by them contemplating something, not by them sitting in a corner and wondering what could be. It's because somebody who knows comes next to them and tells them. And the way that's going to work is if we can increase that surface area. Right? So what does this mean? What do we do about it? Well, I think there are a couple of things. First of all, those who worship Christ, we need to intentionally interact with people who don't yet worship him. Right? And sometimes, in statistics, people quote different things, and I don't know what's really true, but I do know that it's true that sometimes it's easier to interact with people who I agree with on core things than people I don't. And so sometimes we withdraw. Sometimes we say, you know, it'd be more fun, and I actually should go to this Bible study, and Bible studies are good things, and, but we end up filling our lives with things that reduce our contact with other people. And Paul said, sorry, you church in Rome, I'm not coming to you. Because I've got to have more contact with people who don't yet worship Christ. We need to intentionally do that, to intentionally interact with people who don't yet worship Christ. And when we do, we've got to make it a gospel context. So let me go back to my friends on campus. What do they think of Christianity? Political position and moral expectations. So, I tend to keep my politics pretty quiet. Lots of places. But let's take the moral expectations for a second. I try to be a good person. I try to follow the rules on campus. I try to be respectful of people. I try to do the right thing. If that's all that happens, all I did was reinforce their misunderstanding of Christianity. Oh, Christianity is about being a good person. Someday I'll get around to that, or I'm never going to be a good person, or maybe I am a good enough person, or whatever it is. They never understand the gospel. I've got to figure out how to turn this contact into a gospel contact, meaning the core of the gospel is something they've got to hear. So I would see two ways to do it. The first one is to speak naturally and well about God and his people. So that, you know, people talk to me about all sorts of things. Uh, friends who are doing a different, you know, ventures with businesses and friends who are telling me about what's happening with their kids and people speak naturally about all sorts of things. 
And one of the things I've, I'm trying to learn how to do is to speak naturally and well about God. And frankly, sometimes I speak fairly negatively about God. Or I communicate this type of thing because what I communicate is a struggle that I have or something that I'm trying to you know, work through or whatever. And I fail to say, you know, this God that, that I know, he is beyond comprehension in how good he is. And I fail to speak naturally and well about God. And sadly, sometimes, I speak rather negatively about his people. I'll let people know I've got this frustration or this type of thing or whatever. And what an awful thing that I've just cut off somebody from the gospel because I've spoken poorly about the people who worship Christ. So a first thing that I've got to learn to do is as I make more contact with more people who don't yet worship Christ is to speak well and clearly and naturally about God and his people. And also, I need to learn to speak the gospel, right? So back to this issue. People think being a Christian is good. They're not going to know otherwise it, being Christian is because you're good. And they're not going to know otherwise unless sometimes somebody tells them. I need to figure out a way to do that. Now, I know that some people are really good with words and some people aren't. And, and, and so I'm not saying that everybody's got to be the same in this, but I am saying that we all need to figure out ways to say this being a Christian thing is not about being good enough. It's about a God who gives even when I'm not through Christ. And I need to find ways to express that. So I need to bring God, the gospel to the people that I interact with. And then I need to figure out how to bring the people that I interact with to those who are good at explaining the gospel. So Paul said, God's given me a particular grace. And that grace is to bring the gospel to the nations. Well, God has given the grace to some people to be able to tell the good news in a way that's winsome and convincing and people say, wow, I want it. Well, if you know where they are and you've got a friend, bring them together, right? Make that contact. Increase the surface area by drawing your friends into a place where that happens. And I know that today that there are some, not, not because I know individuals, but I just know the way God works, there are people here that God is saying, that's you. That, that he has gifted you in a way that you can communicate the gospel, that you can communicate this good news so that people say, I want that. Well, of course I want that. It brings conviction, that brings change. And if God is doing that, don't be ashamed of it. Like Paul, latch onto it and say, that's what I'm here for. And people say, oh, you gotta, ought to go do this, and you ought to go do this. And you say, well, no, actually, this is the grace that God has given me. And so if God has gifted you in that ability, if you're exploring that, pursue it with all you've got. It's not for everybody, because God doesn't gift us all the same. But if it's you, don't be ashamed of it. Hold on to it. And so my, my last application is support those who are proclaiming the gospel where Christ is not yet worshipped. Do you know somebody who's out there doing this? Do everything you can to encourage them, to support them. Because that's what Paul said to the church in Rome. He said to you guys, I'm going on to Spain. Will you help me out? Will you send me on my way? And so ways that you can do this, pray for people, encourage them. Listen to them. Give if they have financial needs. Support them. It can be a challenging thing. Just ask them questions and listen. It's, you know, that's a, a huge gift that you can give to somebody who's doing this is just to really listen and then pray based on what you've heard and when they mention needs, you say, I bet there's a way that I could help you out in this. Why? Because this is God's heart that the gospel would be taken to the people who do not yet worship him. And if people are doing it, what a thrill to be able to join in on that. So Paul says God's design is that the gospel would be brought where Christ is not yet worshipped. 
we have the thrill of being a part of that. For some of us, it's this is what life is about. That's what God made me for. It's what he's gifted me for. I'm out there, and that's what defines my existence. For most of us, that's probably not what defines our existence, but we can still increase our surface area, make the contact with the non-Christians, and somehow bring out the truth, the wonder of the God that we have. Bring them into the contact with the gospel because that's in God's heart. And as they do, we, like Paul, can bring an offering of people that Christ has purchased for the glory of our God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for your heart for people living apart from the grace of your son. Father, I thank you that you long to have your goodness flow in this world that you've created through all the people that are here. Father, I thank you for that heart and I thank you for the, the, the frightening, awesome privilege of being a part of your means of communicating that amazing news to the people around us, to the people next door, to the people on the other side of the world, that somehow we can play a part in these things. Father, I pray right now, first of all, for people here who, who perhaps are coming to terms with it themselves. And Father, I just pray for the contact that they have with your people, that, that it would be rich, and that through that, they would become a part of this, this sweet-smelling offering to you of people who have been saved by the work of your son. And Father, for those here who, who recognize this work that you're doing in their lives to, to give focus to bringing the good news to people who do not yet worship your son. Father, I pray that you would keep them from being ashamed of it. Help them to revel in it. Help them to focus on it. And even when people try to distract them from it, Father, if they know this is your plan, I pray that for their boldness, for your equipping, equipping in their lives. And Father, for all of us, that we would take advantage of the contact that we have with people who do not yet worship your son. Father, you are so amazing. You're good beyond our understanding, good beyond compare. And what you've provided for us is just startling. It is so good. Father, I pray that we would be clear in making your way known, a way that we couldn't guess, a way that people will never figure out just by looking at us, a way that is known because you've revealed yourself in your son, in your word. Father, I thank you that we can be a part of bringing this good news to the world around us. In your son's name we pray, amen. Well, thank you very much for being here this morning and uh, go get a glass of ice water and decide what kind of ice you want to put in it. Uh, Have a great week.